A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about me, Danny Moran. I'm a successful art director who gets headhunted by a go-getting recruiter called Sam Foster for a prestigious job at GQ magazine. Initially, I'm skeptical about the job, mainly because it involved me moving to New York. But after a fun night out in the Big Apple with Sam, I accept the job. Once there, me and Sam stop boning, but we're not in a relationship. There's just strictly no-strings-attached boning between two platonic friends. However, after a few great, and I mean great, great nights together, (laughs) Sam decides he wants to get back on the dating scene, and so we suspend our arrangement. After a disastrous relationship with an oncologist called Brian, who bangs him then leaves him, Sam's a little despondent. Cheer him up, I invite him to come and stay with me in LA as I visit my family. While there, we connect emotion like we never had before, and share a night of hot, intense, intimate lovemaking. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 2011 classic Friends with Benefits. That's the one with Milo Kunis and Justin Timberlake. This, however, is just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is my hot career-focused pal, slash lover, slash pal, slash lover, I can't decide, Sam Foster. Hello. If you're out there, Brian, I just want to say, fuck you. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) this week on Film Chat, we review two films that remind us that there's nothing harder than being a teenager. You're confused, you don't fit in, grown-ups don't understand you, the priest at school hates your radical 80s haircut, and your Turkish uncle won't let you leave the house until he's married you off to a man you've never met. That was my childhood, at least. A near-perfect amalgam of the musical coming-of-age story Sing Street and the Oscar-nominated family drama Mustang. We also discuss Shia LaBeouf's plans for his next confrontational art piece in which he signs up to act in a film and people go to see the film, We learn the one thing that the notoriously greedy Daniel Craig will not do for £68 million. And we dive into the most vital debate about ethics and values since that one about video game journalism. The nerdy grumbling surrounding the Ghostbusters reboot. All that should leave just enough time for me to launch into my own angry nerd rant about the injustice, the outrage, the crime against art itself... That is the decision to turn my favourite film, Uncharted 4, into a video game. Rugged adventurer Nathan Drake is my animal spirit, and it cleaves my soul in two to hear that the studio fat cats, the corrupt so-called journalists that they own, and the feminazis have joined forces to kick my childhood into a ditch by transforming my beloved treasure hunter into a male video game character. It's nothing sacred, feminists! You've got the vote. Why not take my heart out of my chest and shit on it as well? Anyway, more of that rant later. That's a good point. Films, 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 
films, films, films, films, films, lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Boo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. Our one true fan, Steph Muldina, has got back in touch. He says, best Cannes Film Festival reporting ever. It was just like being there. Well done, if only for the great sound effects and dodgy French accents. Keep up the great work, you three. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Yeah, so if you missed... I mean, I'm sure that none of our listeners missed it, but we were in Cannes last week before we were unceremoniously booted out by French film director, um, come bodyguard, um, come bouncer, Jean-Marc Vallée. Yeah, Jean-Marc, we... You know, we crossed him once too often, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Steph. I just by by sound effects, I assume you mean just the sound of us being in can, which is what that was. Yeah, and by dodgy, I assume you mean incredibly accurate, just real. native French speakers. Yeah, I mean it is nice to hear real French accents from real French people being French, <laughs> <laughs> which is what those were. <laughs> you like a sort of Brexit guy? <laughs> I want you like a sort of French Morrison's ad. I want my French voices yeah. said by French people in France. <laughs> exactly. You got the same opinion Richard Hammond has about beef. <laughs> you have about French voices. That's completely true, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm a patriot, Danny. I'm patriotic for France as much as I am for this country. I just like national boundaries to be very, you know, fixed. So thank you, Steph. Thank you, Steph. We also heard this week from Tim Rogers, who wrote in in response to Danny's review of Green Room. He says, Saw Green Room this Tuesday and completely agreed with Danny that it is a masterfully put-together film. Jeremy Saunier is brilliant at the show-don't-tell school of storytelling. With very little exposition, I always felt I knew where the characters were, what resources they had access to, and why they were doing what they were doing. Every action and issue is dealt with like a move in a game of chess, and the leanness of the film really adds to the tension. All of this makes me incredibly excited for the director's upcoming work in his Spectrum saga, which sounds as interesting as his first two pieces. Following Blue Ruin and Green Room, Saulnier has now been attached to the latest in Warner Brothers' remakes of old properties. They have recently greenlit Saulnier's somber adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, Yellow Road. Saulnier has already started working on a Donald Trump, Donald Trump documentary, Orange Rug, and a dark exploration of the locomotive industry in the American South, Red Rail. <laughs> that one I don't even understand. Don't even sound that joke of that one. Most intriguing, though, is his proposed Prince biopic, Purple Rain. Focusing on the early years of the musician's career, Saulnier has promised to combine the spirit of 1999 with a meditation of the corrosive quality of hate, along with his signature explosions of violence. Even if you're not sure about him, putting forward Macon Blair for the lead still sounds better than I saw the light. Very wow. good. You know more about Solnier's slate than we do. Your, yeah. Your finger's really on the pulse, Tim. Yeah, um, absolutely is. But Tim, can I just say... He's got four films in the worst. That's a lot. You know, we had a difference of opinion about the film Room, and now our relationship has come full circle with the green room. Yeah. Let's get a pizza. Let's rent Room of a View. See where our opinions lie on that movie. 
then get a drink, go see The Room. I don't know. I and think then... it might be a risk to watch more Room films with Tim. No, I think we've broken through. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. I think after one kind of contentious Room opinion yeah, yeah. You know, thing, now you're on the same... You're in the same room. Absolutely. I'm going to download Guy Madden's Art House Film The Forbidden Room. Mm. Going to watch that. What did you think of that, Tim? We uh, reviewed that in Film Chat Past. Yeah. So I assume you went and watched it. Yeah, you watch everything we tell you to watch, right, Tim? I pretty much assume that every time we review anything, everyone listens, watches that thing, right? Yeah. We're pretty much Absolutely. You know, generating a lot of um, cinema goes for the British film industry. Do you think Star Wars was a hit by itself? No. no. It's because we reviewed it. No. That film had only made $1 before we reviewed it, and then it made a billion. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think not. Well, thank you very much, Tim. And I uh, look forward to bringing you our thoughts on uh, Jeremy Saulnier's many, many other uh, colour-related movies. Next time I see Tim, if I do see Tim, I'll probably like be in a room and I can make a great joke. I hey, I hear that Saulnier is going to adapt, um, do another adaptation of Fifty Shades of Grey called Red Room of Pain. Nice. Um, with emphasis on the pain. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a brutal, uh, mostly the whippings and beatings. Yeah, um, a lot of flayings, general gore yeah. sprayed all over the walls. It's going to really push him in a sort of Ramsey Bolton direction. The it, character. Yeah, exactly. More Ramsey than Christian, um, but obviously very sexy as well. <laughs> <laughs> Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tips. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. News now, as every week, news in the same place. And some bombshell news. Uh, well, rumor, rumor news, courtesy of the Daily Mail. Daniel Craig, who, um, while on the press tour for Spectre, made comments along the lines of, I'd rather eat my own legs than do another Bond film, may not make another Bond film. And apparently he has turned down a vast sum of money. <laughs> which the uh, Daily Mail amounts to approximately $76 million to make uh, two more Bond movies. He said no. And I have to say that I think of myself as someone with a lot of integrity. Mm. I'm not a greedy person. Like, I don't do things for money. But I would do any number of disgusting and repulsive, humiliating things. (laughs) And for what, that much money. And what is more repulsive and humiliating than being the star in a major motion picture? <laughs> well, that's where, going, you know, that's where I'm going. Chicks and That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. If you offered me $76 million, you pretty much own my body and yeah. mind. You know, I will say or do anything in the world, no matter how degrading, for that sum. So, what is it about being Bond that Daniel Craig hates so much that he won't do two more of them? Well, is he just sick of the gym? Is he bored of uh, the press tours? You know, what is it? Well, um, you know, he's he's done four of them, I guess. He's done four. He, he's kind of done. Made, I guess he's made his millions from that. Yeah, he's probably not... He's probably financially quite secure. Yeah. And he's going to do... He's going to do like a fellow, isn't he, on Broadway? He's going to do some acting now. I think he might do some acting. He's making a TV series, right? Yeah, Jonathan Franzen TV show. Purity. Which is what started the rumours in the first place, because the fact that he's signed onto this means he won't be available the slot where you think a new Bond film will be being filmed so people are like oh he's not doing it again yeah do you think Impurity is going to play like a fat old man or something <laughs> <laughs> and it would just prevent him from because like he would just have to look like shit 
so it just prevents him from being bond it's like you, you're playing an old fat man wearing a sack it's like you know can't right. work he can't be bond at the same wearing time wearing these gq suits for like for too long yeah yeah i think it'd be good for him to move on because he was like a sort of interesting cool character actor and it's yeah. a bit like he got swept away into this franchise and he hasn't made anything remotely good in the last 10 years I'm trying to think like even if you think the bond movies are good like yeah. his projects outside them are Come on, pretty what about terrible. his performance as captain haddock in uh the adventures of tintin the spielberg film? he wasn't captain haddock i know oh, he's villain. the villain he wasn't that was um <laughs> andy circus all right well his performance as the villain whoever the hell that was was pretty good he and the... he was the stormtrooper in the force awakens <laughs> wasn't he <laughs> he was that remember cowboys the aliens remember that great movie yeah that was brilliant him and harrison ford and flashbacks of a fool film. Incredible film. Almost as good as the title. <laughs> I think it was probably about as good as that title. You're a fool. <laughs> flashbacks of a fool. What is this stupid person reminiscing about? And the film Dreamhouse. Remember the film Dreamhouse? No, I don't actually remember that at all. Well, I don't think anyone does. I think Daniel Craig remembers it because Rachel Weisz was on it. He's done some SNL sketches, hasn't he? Yes. My point is... Come on, Dan. He's done a lot. <laughs> he's had a great career. I don't think there's a single film he's made that I would want to see or no. see again. I think the pro- yeah. I mean, when we saw him in Layer Cake, Daniel Craig had a bit of charm and charisma. Maybe I'm in the minority here because I know he's a very popular Bond, but I really find him very boring to watch being Bond. He really looks detached from me. He looks really uninterested. You know, he's crossed the line from just kind of emotionlessly, you know, dedicated to his job. Machine yeah, to... cold machine to just like bored rich man who's just sitting in a suit, just being <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah, here I am. So, yeah, I agree. It's probably nice nice for Daniel to move on. Yeah, like, even if the Bond films continue to be bad, at least there'll be a new face in them. Get Idris Elba. Get someone new for every fucking Bond film. Then at least we'll have some something different. That's true. To look forward to. They That's... should do that. I agree. Reboot them per movie. I think just reboot them like every twenty minutes. What every, like, during the film? Yeah, have a different. What well, he just goes to the room, he comes out <laughs> someone else. Yeah, you do a kind of I'm not there version of um, like Kate Blanchett's just like yeah, yeah. she's Bond now. Yeah, get Todd Haynes to direct it and get yeah. like twelve actors to play Bond. That's a that's a fantastic idea. Get um, Quaventione Wallace, she's yeah, yeah. Bond now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but only for uh, like ten minutes. And it's like Paul Giamatti. <laughs> like, ten minutes. <laughs> oh no, I know what they should do. They should do that, but they should also use that Marvel age-changing technology to make them a, they're all different random ages as well yeah do you think that would make it extra exciting it's like michael douglas but he's only 20 years old even though he's actually really old <laughs> you make all the young actors old all the old all actors, the, all the old actors, actors young. young exactly you get Haley atwell she's an 80 year old woman bond michael douglas is a 20 year old man bond <laughs> yeah jacob tremblay is like <laughs> he's like 95 <laughs> he's in a wheelchair <laughs> He's on oxygen. Yeah, Brad Pitt is like a baby. He's doing Benjamin Button again as like an old man baby. This is a great idea. But he's Bond. <laughs> this is brilliant. This is the best idea we've ever had. I know this sounds like stream of consciousness, like total bullshit, but I think that it could make a coherent and exciting spy thriller. And that's just, I mean, that might just be my view, but... Well, I think it's a view that a lot of people would share. Oh, uh, yeah. And it would still make more sense than Spectre. Yeah. Yes. Why does the building explode at the <laughs> end? <laughs> the plot was bad. <laughs> what was their plan? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Let's anyway, move on. let's move on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Come out story. Bored of it now. In what is possibly the best bit of casting ever, Shia LaBeouf is signed on to play LaBeouf LaBeouf to play John McEnroe in a film which dramatizes his rivalry with uh, the Swedish tennis player Bjorn Borg. Um, that's going to be played by Swedish newcomer Sverre Gudnason and Stellan Skarsgård, who is in 20% of all films ever made, yeah. uh, has signed on to play Borg's coach Lennart Bergelin or Bergelin. And it's going to be directed by a Danish director called Janis metz Perdison, who was a big hit in 2010 when he um, showed his war documentary Armadillo, and he's gone on to direct episodes of True Detective. So that's an interesting collection of people, and I think that sounds great. Yeah, and I think that casting makes a certain amount of sense, because Sheila Berth is quite a shouty guy, both in his art output and his mainstream output, and McEnroe is obviously famous as a shouty tennis player. And in my mind... When I think of Sheila Berth shouting and I think of McEnroe shouting, they're similar kind of voices, you know? Yeah. Sheila Berth and his like, no, 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 no. It's kind of similar to the, like, you cannot be serious. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it kind of fits. fits. Yeah, and they're both quite intense. Well, we were discussing a few episodes ago about this movie Battle of the Sexes, about the Bobby Rigg match and how tennis is untapped for its cinema potential. And, like, McEnroe-Borg is one of, like, the big rivalries of any sporting game ever. Yeah. And it's such a great clash of personalities because he's, like, this incredibly temperamental, like, brat. And Borg is, like, this ice-cold guy who, like, never lost his cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it you know writes it's itself. A bit, you know what it's a bit like? The movie that just came out, Porn Sacrifice? The yeah. About um, Bobby Fischer against Boris Spassky in yeah, the yeah. 1976 chess world championship. Because that's a similar thing where there's like a fiery, slightly like insane American guy facing a foreigner with a thick accent who's like cool as a cucumber. Yeah. And I also like how they've taken the name. It's like the naming convention from a Frost Nixon. Yeah. I thought a slash meant or. Doesn't a slash mean or, you know? Yeah. Like Frost Nixon with a slash in the middle should be like Frost or Nixon. Yeah. Why am I seeing a film with them both in it? It should be a choose-your-own-adventure where you go in and you pick and you either watch Frost or Nixon. And Borg McEnroe should be the same thing. Or it should be a fraction. And it's like Borg over McEnroe. Like Borg divided by McEnroe like equals what? Yeah. Great drama. <laughs> but yeah, it's got a lot of potential. Being... Why are you brushing aside my comments about the slash? <laughs> Can't we dwell on that for a bit longer? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. I was going to say... Um, our younger listeners, which uh, don't exist, <laughs> yeah, will my not, cousin Maggie, she probably listens. Will not remember a time when there wasn't a roof at Wimbledon. So when it rained, they just show classic matches, and it often show McEnroe Borg because, it, like, it's like their matches were like they were written by a sort of you know a scriptwriter because you know one would be up and down and there'd be like a match point and it'd be super tense. It's like all they got to do is dramatize this. And it's amazing it, it well. took them so long. Absolutely. I love Macro. I like how that he's like such a dick in the 80s, but he's so good at commentating now that everyone's sort of forgiven him and he's sort of become like an elder statesman figure. Yeah. I don't know. He seems like really matured. Yeah. And it, it, similar to Beckham, I guess, when uh, 
Beckham was a kind of brat in the 90s and now he's become, you know, the man. He's and like I'm slightly universally beloved man. Everyone is a bit in love yeah, with Beckham. He's great. I think when Sheila Burfe gets a bit older, he might calm down himself. He might stop doing his bizarre hashtag art projects. He'll take on some, uh, you know, more distinguished roles once his hair grays a little bit. And then he can play McEnroe as a commentator in McEnroe's commentating career. And he great. can dramatize the scene when McEnroe is approached by a film director who wants him to play himself in the film Wimbledon. Because <laughs> that's the real pivotal moment in McEnroe's older career. Yes. <laughs> that's the scene I really want to see. For me, this Borg McEnroe movie is just a stepping stone in a longer story leading up to the moment in which McEnroe plays himself in a cameo role voiceover in Wimbledon. That's going to be the pinnacle of McEnroe's drama on Absolutely. screen for me. So uh, this whole Sheila Birth thing was brought to our attention by Dougal McQueen, who uh, wrote in about our trip to Cannes to ask us if we'd seen um, Andrea Arnold's new movie, American Honey, in, in which Sheila Birth plays a struggling beekeeper. Dougal says, apparently it's the best. Can't think of an appropriate superlative at the moment. And speaking of stinging yellow animals, her bizarre, scary short film Wasp is up online for literally free. You can watch it here at this gorgeously French-sounding web address, www.lecinemaclub.com. I enjoy the show. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Um, Ooh. Thank you, Dougal. It's very nice of you to say. And yeah, I recommend Wasp. Wasp is quite good. I've seen that. It's probably the best thing Dan Dye's ever done. Dan Dye, oh, it's well it's the best thing Dan Dye's ever done. Yeah. Anyway, as far as I understand, Danny... You were watching video of uh, Sheila Burf at Cannes promoting, was. promoting American, American Honey. Honey. Yes, yeah. and a journalist asked him how he prepared for the role in American Honey and also asked him how he's going to prepare for the role of McEnroe and how much of him is in the characters. And Shia LaBeouf gave a typically uh, nuts response. Here it is. Shia, I was curious as to what aspects of your personality and character you saw in Jake and also uh, what gives uh, you the uh, the confidence to take on your next role of John McEnroe. Yeah, he is me. Jake is me. Uh, and so is so is McEnroe. <laughs> That's it, man. Can you play tennis? I mean, I, 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 no, I, I can't. But, uh, yeah, I, I understand these people. I empathize with them. I, I get it. You know, these are... It's, it's not... Um, you just turn things up. You turn things down. You know, it's me. I'm getting her. On that note, I'm afraid our time is up. Thank you all very much for being here. I like that, that that's how it ends. That ends the conference. On a completely different film. His enigmatic... Wait, didn't um, Sheila Burf once um, just repeat that famous uh, Eric Cantona thing about yeah. the seagulls following the trawler? Yeah, the nymphomaniac. Yeah, yeah the nymphomaniac thing. And I, it's hard to tell whether he's just doing that again or whether that was his genuine response you know that's why he's a genius you turn stuff up you turn stuff down yeah i basically like you have a certain you and then you just exaggerate certain aspects of your own psyche until i think yeah i think when you're acting you've obviously got to think about how the emotions you know work in your own mind and then translate that into a different character right yeah we're both great actors so we'll understand absolutely so i don't know who knows what to say about him anyway I'm psyched, though. I think this is a good marriage of um, material and actor. Yeah, I agree. Bring it on. I agree completely. Bring the film on! As Macro would say, you cannot be serious that this film is going to happen. Because it sounds so, so darn great! <laughs> it sounds so darn too and great! The 
looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shy. Okay, start reviewing now. Okay, so Mustang. My thing now is watching movies about young women bonding with each other and dealing it. with uh, troublesome adults in their lives. So Mustang is a foreign film that you might have seen posters for on the tube with a bunch of sunny-looking young ladies. It's got a string of awards, nominations, and victories um, across last year. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars, and it's turned up here. And I don't know if it's still available in the cinemas. You know, It'll be in your local art house cinema, and you can find it online as well quite easily. It's available on demand in a number of different places. It is the story of five orphan sisters, and at the beginning they are at school together, and they go off and... Um, have a fun time playing around in the sea with a bunch of boys. Word gets around in their local village in Turkey, and there is some widespread disapproval amongst their family um, about their playing with the boys, and their uncle, their sort of patriarchal uncle, decides to take them out of school, keep them in the house, and basically keep them sort of interned there until they are ready to be married off to uh, men of his family's choosing. Right. So I enjoyed it a lot. There's a lot to like about it. I didn't find it completely mind-blowing, but uh, it's got a lot of the similar charms to Our Little Sister, which is um, another kind of female solidarity movie um, about sisters, in that they are all uh, very beautiful women in a very like nice, lovely-looking place, and they have great chemistry amongst themselves. And a lot of the movie is them hanging out and very kind of naturalistic, and very believable like you feel like you're watching a documentary about you know loving sisters having a great time together but this movie whereas our little sister was um just a sort of sunny balmy film about loveliness this is more of a movie that sets them against very direct obstacles and people who want to kind of crush them and it's a fairly unsubtle broadside against the patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) represented by their uncle and uh, they have essentially sort of medieval views of um, a woman's role in life. You, you're basically taught to like cook and clean when you're young. And then when you get older, um, you have to be married off to a, a dude and your families kind of agree who you marry. and You don't really get a say in it. And you have to be a virgin as well. So there's like um, all sorts of stuff about, you know, making sure that the women are virgins and that kind of thing. Because the patriarchal um, power structures that the movie depicts feel quite familiar, because if you were to draw up a, you know, your standard ultra-patriarchal society, this would kind of be it. You know, I think that the message of the movie maybe doesn't have that much power or impact, only because you feel like... It's like, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, it's, seen it before. it's a bit... You've seen it before, but it's also a bit like, there's not that much room for nuance, you know? Yeah. The, the movie doesn't really give you that much, like, there's no deciding what side to take. You know, it's like the women are like lovely, angelic beacons of light and joy. And like, the man is just basically a dick. Um, and he wants to control them. So the sort of more interesting characters are probably like the women in the, like the older women in the household who are um, both a part of the system that's uh, keeping the young girls down, but also suffered under it themselves when they were growing up. And so um, there's some really nice moments 
uh, with sure. them because it's a bit more ambiguous what they're going to do and where their loyalties lie. And uh, they're kind of the jailers of the girls, but also trying to protect them from the uncle um, and the other men who sort of uh, swan around a bit. For about like two thirds of, or you know, half or so of the running length, it's kind of um, getting by on the um, charm of seeing them hang out and um, their sort of escapades and their struggles against being like imprisoned in this uh, in this place. And then when the movie gets into, we have to you know kick the plot up a gear and um, resolve matters and you know head towards a climax. Uh, it gets a bit melodramatic, and there's one particular thing that happens which i won't spoil but that felt a little bit unearned for me in that it felt a bit like it's an injection of drama from the outside rather than something that naturally came out of the movie and it wasn't wasn't properly dealt with through the rest of the like um stuff that happened and i can't say what it is without yeah yeah without spoiling it you mean though that's like a common thing where Uh, you have sort of like naturally like hangout movies and then when like some plot happens it feels like oh it's actually a film yeah yeah exactly it felt like it's a screen it was a screenwriting device yeah and because the thing is itself is so powerful that it kind of like it doesn't have the effect that it should have because it feels imposed from outside rather than going from the actions of the movie and and i also think that this particular thing that happens is like very commonly used as that so i know i'm talking in like very abstract terms but i kind of wanted to write some kind of blog post about this at some point but it's like i feel like a lot of the time in movies they will inject drama with horror and it turns things that happen in real life that are really really horrifying and dreadful into a way like the the the, the dramatic convenience of that thing happening is too clear yeah so you feel more that of the 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 way it's used as a lever to push the story into a certain place than you do the actual dramatic impact of that thing happening to these people's lives i know what you mean yeah so um so i think like the end doesn't it doesn't fully satisfy and i read a slightly sniffy empire review of it and they they gave it three stars and the guy was saying that it ends on a note of sentimentality rather than optimism which i think is um fair to say and based i think what he means by it is that like it ends in a way that is kind of evoking evoking closure without really having dramatically earned it right i would say yeah so there's a there's a lot of um lovely moments in it the performances are all really like excellent the girls are just incredible and i just bought into everything that they did completely like yeah i thought they were they were fantastic and it's an interesting light being shone on a corner of society that i didn't know anything about which is like turkish rural upbringing you know don't know anything about that and it's very beautiful and uh, very well played, but maybe a little unsubtle. I see. Patriarchy's bad? Patriarchy's bad? Yeah. Does it act as like a sort of prequel film to Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> um, Does it end with like Shai Strong coming in with like a metal arm? Like, I'm getting you girls out of here. You think like the, the, the movie is named after a car and they're like taking the patriarchy down? Yeah yeah <laughs> it's yeah. a spiritual uh prequel well the girls are, you know yeah i mean i like to imagine that they escape their compound head into the desert and go straight to diesel town yeah and uh and then come and steal back a war rig and then yeah. come straight back yeah and rip the uncle's face off <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's gonna be mustang too can't wait Now back to film chat. 
Okay. Enough of that our house bullshit we bring into the podcast these days. As, yeah, I want as real cinema, by which I mean things which are light and untroubling, uh, which takes the form of Sing Street this week. This is the latest film from John Carney, who hit the big time with Once, uh, that charming film about buskers, which I've never seen, but I hear is really charming. And then he made the, sort of the same film called Begin Again. He loves music and films and musicians and films. That's kind of like his thing. So Sing Street is like an autobiographical tale-ish with a lot of genre liberties. It's set in 1980s Dublin and a teenage boy called Connor is taken out of private school and sent to his local Catholic comprehensive on Sing Street because his parents are, uh, their resources are dwindling due to unemployment in Ireland. There, Connor faces bullying both from the students and the headmaster. But things look up when he notices a total babe across the street called Rafina, who has dreams of being a professional model. And in order to get her attention, he forms a band and enlists her to star in the band's music videos, all with the encouragement of his pot-smoking music aficionado older brother, Brendan. Here is a clip Brendan giving a very honest appraisal of the band's first efforts to do a Duran Duran cover. That was bad, bad music, and there is nothing as bad in this world as bad music. You know, you can record overtake. No. That was a novelty act. You want to have actual sexual intercourse, right? Yeah, well... What? The girl. It's all about the girl, isn't it? Yeah, the girl, yeah. And you're going to use somebody else's art to get her? Are you kidding? We're just starting. We need to learn how to play. Do the Sex Pistols know how to play? You don't need to know how to play. Who are you, Steely Dan? You need to learn how not to play, Connor. That's the trick. That's rock and roll. And that takes practice. And you're not a covers band, by the way. Really? No. Every school has a covers band. Every pub has a covers band. Every wedding has a covers band. And every covers band has a middle-aged member who'll never know whether they could have made it in the music industry or not because they never had the balls to write a song for someone else. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. But I don't know how to write a song. Close that door and sit down. Really? It's going to be a long night. A school in the morning. This is school. So, in short, I think this is a sort of a collection of very familiar story ideas and tropes mixed with some very genuine seeming personal moments and experiences and it's a little bit of a mess but it's just a bit it's too earnest and good natured to get not get on board with i think you have to be like a real cynic not to like get into it but like as i sort of analyze it in a sort of scientific way i could sort of point to all the problems in the film but i'm not sure if that even matters because you kind of i don't know kids, yeah. kids in bands is fun it had a lot of winning elements, which compensated for all the flaws. I think that's true. Like, the music is really good, which I think is important. And it sells the emotional core of the movie to you a bit because you buy into the songs. And also, I think the fact that you can tell that it's a personal project for the director helps with the helps uh, get the cliches down a little bit. You know, it's like sure. you kind of kind of greases the wheel a little bit of familiarity with a with some real heart. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's coming from the right place. You're like, OK. Yeah, exactly. I think the kind of the problems of the film stem from it doesn't quite know what it wants to be in that it's sort of a film about this, you know, first love of this girl, sort of coming of age. It's also about his relationship with the older brother. And it's also about how arts, in this case, music can elevate you beyond your surroundings. And, you know, you can be like a hero for two minutes if you play an awesome song. And it's sort of all those things. But occasionally at the same time in a way where some of the elements get a bit drowned out and there's probably a slightly more streamlined coherent take on this story but at the same time 
I'm not that bothered by the flaws in a way. I sort of like it is what it is, and you know, it's yeah, it's kind of like it's it's messiness is almost charming because yeah. it, you feel like it's a, you know his, his diary turned into a film. Definitely, I think it's risky to dive too much into imagining yourselves in the positions of people making the movie but it does kind of feel like someone wrote a really sprawling but heartfelt autobiographical tale of their childhood filled with songs and then a hollywood screenwriter came in and was like listen man this doesn't this is a total mess you know we've got to tighten this thing up <laughs> yeah yeah um and got about halfway through with that um and you know but didn't quite complete the process so there's certain elements in the film that i think seem so dramatically true that they they really hit home and I think the thing that does that the most is the relationship between the kid and his brother. And if John Carney doesn't have an older brother, I'll eat my socks. Because <laughs> uh, because I just really bought into their relationship and all that stuff um, seems so effective. And there's a very sweet scene in which they are watching um, their mother sitting outdoors, smoking a cigarette and kind of thinking about her life. And the miserable woman in the sidelines of the story is quite a familiar trope um, in these types of coming-of-age stories. And there was something really nice about devoting a moment of the movie to, uh, if not her actual perspective, at least people thinking about what it would be. Yeah. And those sorts of things, those rang really true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, there's, and there's definitely other elements where it's like, you know, you feel like someone's coming. It's like, come on, guys, this is a movie. You know, you've got to have a proper story with closure and like, and those things didn't seem. Yeah, I would say it's like it's half the director's teenage years and half wish fulfillment of what he wishes teenage um, years were like. And with that sort of slightly binary approach, there's a little, a few problems that arise. And uh, occasionally, like the tone, it doesn't know quite what movie it is. And this is true of, um, I think, best exemplified by the headmaster character who on one hand is a sort of ferris bueller principal rooney s villain and one hand actually like a sort of threat like yeah white time threat and it's like one of these actually happened and one of them is in a film and that is true of the whole film yeah that was an odd that character was an odd one because um it felt quite extraneous to the story and especially the way that he's worked into the climax has, because he's such an sort of evil guy it lends this note of bitterness into what is otherwise quite a kind of soulful um happy ending where it's like just feels like it doesn't quite belong yeah and also i think another problem which arises from the actual truth slash wish fulfillment is the child the main character connor at the beginning he's you know unsure he's in a new school he's being bullied you know his parents are arguing and it's like who can't relate to this and then 20 minutes in he's formed an awesome band and it's like and they're making yeah. incredible music. And they're making incredible music instantly. It's like the movie's got is doing so much stuff, it doesn't really have time to struggle. So they are this is a great band. There's a bit where they're like, hey, how about I compose this song? It's like this kid is a fucking genius. This kid I, writes yeah. the best song in well, about I think, two minutes. I think the movie is more interested in pop music than it is in being in a band. Like the the heart of the drama is about the family relationships. And it's not really about the band relationship at all. Yeah. Like the band characters get kind of short shrift. And that's another thing where I felt like someone had attempted to streamline this movie because um although they they do get stuff to do but they, their characters are not remotely explored and it feels like that there's been some stuff that has been like winnowed away and it we're just left with um the core like the heart of the movie is obviously his family relationships plus this romance which is pretty good what did you make what did you make of the romance the romance was a bit too over familiar for me yeah. i found um but she got some nice moments the the girl yeah rafina rafina yeah that's sort of the movie, I think. It's like, it's familiar, but then, then there's like a few beats that... That really work. That really work, exactly. And 
I mean, I've talked about a lot of the flaws, but it has a lot of winning elements. Chief among them, I like movies where bands are formed, and at the end of the movie, they're going to do a gig, and there's something very pleasing about the structure, uh, the structure of that. And I also like kids acting like adults and trying to sort of do stuff. There's this like sort of Rambo-esque quality to like them making the video. And who doesn't like elaborate musical dream sequences? Absolutely. And that's like, that's one of the greatest things films do. And if you can't get a ball of elaborate musical dream sequence, I don't know what's wrong with you. I think that's the bit where all the elements of the film are synthesized perfectly. And like, if you could just take that one scene and that is like the perfect meeting place for all these disparate elements that he's trying to do like the family relationship and his own insecurities and his hopes and dreams and the power of pop music as self-expression yeah and that's, that's when it all works absolutely and, and i think like that was the i think it's the highlight of the movie and then when you know at that moment i was like fully you know i was fully on board i was like this is fantastic i would say whatever flaws it has is just outshone by its charm yeah and I would, I would advise it. I'd advise you see it. Yeah, you've already seen it. I've already seen it. But I advise you listening at home. I definitely, I definitely recommend it. I think that I felt from watching the trailer like I'd seen the movie already. When I watched the trailer, I was like, I get it. I know it's going to happen. It's like fine. Uh, and I was quite pleasantly surprised. I, I think, I think it convinces you very quickly of the genuine place that the movie is coming from, and that takes it a long way. Uh, and it's very it reminded me a lot of son of Rambo. actually i found it quite hard not to compare the two which is another movie about children making art in order to escape from their like dull dreary lives with other problems and they're interesting in that i think son of rambo is a film where the family elements feel a bit more tacked on as like filmic devices whereas in this movie that's where the heart of the film is and in son of rambo it's the heart of the film is like being a kid and making art and in this movie, being a kid and making art is, like, really easy. And, you know, they make <laughs> art like adults do. Yeah, yeah. So they're sort of interesting companion pieces in a way. And of the two, I think Son of Rambo, at least for me, captured the feeling of being young and um, uncertain and messing around more truly than this one did. But but they're both very, very charming films. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you, just, you know, go yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, go, go see it. It'll warm your cockles consider your cockles warmed <laughs> yesterday i bumped into imelda staunton she was up with her dog and we got talking i asked her what she does when she isn't acting she said she likes podcasts for relaxing imelda when you're in the mood what do you listen to and finally, I was on Twitter, as I often am, and I hope you will follow Podcast Film Chat on Twitter, and I came across this interesting article written by Devin Faraci, the chief editor of Birth Movies Death, popular movie website. Uh, website. And he wrote an article about the negative backlash to the upcoming Ghostbusters movie and how it's strange that there's been so many remakes and reboots, but this one has so much vitriol to it and suggesting there's actually just a cover for quite casual mis- misogyny. Yeah, well, he's kind of making the argument. I mean, a lot of the abuse directed in the new Ghostbusters movie has been very directly sexist. And he's making an argument that goes a step further. And he's basically saying that like there's a broader strain of soft sexism which means that people are objecting to the movie, even the ones who aren't doing so on explicitly sexist grounds are objecting to it because they fundamentally don't like to see women doing their boy stuff. 
no, no. Well, and that's the argument that he makes. Absolutely. And in this article, he cites a recent YouTube video of a review, well, a lack of a review by Angry Gamer Video Nerd. Yeah, who, or Angry Video Game Nerd. Nerd who is a popular um, YouTube reviewer. And he released a video which is now has over a million views called Ghostbusters I Refuse to Review. And it's basically him saying he loves the original Ghostbusters and why he won't be reviewing this. Yeah, it's he, too much he, of an affront. The existence of the movie is too much of an affront absolutely. to review it. And he cites, this is the sort of starting point of Devin Verrucci's article. Yeah, I think I think Verrucci is doing the thing of trying to tackle your opponent's arguments at its strongest, which is admirable because the guy's review, he doesn't mention the women very much at all, and he's not saying that it's lame that the women are in it, uh, but it's basically his way of kind of dem Dem is trying to use that as an example of the soft sexism he's talking about you know Mm. even though it's not explicit he thinks that there's still a sexist impulse behind it so film chat fan and general uh good person (laughs) (laughs) um dan knoll has written in because he noticed us post this on twitter and he had a few thoughts about this he's a fan of video gamer angry nerd man i can't get his like initials in the right way anyway he says um, about the Fratchy article, I feel this is making some pretty murky assertions over angry video game nerd being sexist. I think Ghostbusters 3 just has the really shitty luck of being targeted by a horrible online misogynist campaign and having some pretty awful marketing materials. In the case of Mad Max, another film targeted by men's rights activists, the trailer was fantastic so the stupid sexists were easy to ignore during the run-up to release. Overall, I think the reaction to this trailer has been overwhelmingly ridiculous, both on the side of man-children complaining their childhoods have been ruined, and on the side of clickbait journalism implying people may have some inherent unconscious sexism by not being particularly cited for it. I'd agree with Birth Movie's death on the point that it does seem suspicious that this film has somehow become the tipping point to take a stand against Cash Cow remakes, considering other mediocre to poor remake trailers come out every other week without the same kind of cultural outrage. But I've been somewhat of a fan of AVGN for some time, and I'm aware of the affection he holds for the original Ghostbusters, and although I don't entirely agree with his judgement or the idea of boycotting movies in general, I can understand why he wouldn't want to support the franchise reboot machine on this occasion. Sadly, one person taking a stand on a franchise that has some personal resonance with them feeds into the whole continuing narrative of imbeciles venting their anger over the female cast. I think it's sad and a little regressive how ready publications are to create an us-versus-them mentality over a film which seems intent on eradicating those gender boundaries. So, I think it's a very interesting... Yeah, I think it's a very interesting issue, and, you know, I have to defer to Dan uh, to an extent because I don't know anything about Angry Video Game Nerd. <laughs> well, I watched his video, and I'd say... I watched his, it as, I watched his, it as well. His point is basically the film is not the sort of fan fiction movie he had in his head, and he's annoyed that the original cast aren't there to pass the torch onto a, a newer cast. cast. Yeah. He basically wants it to be like the Force Awakens uh, Ghostbusters, um, which is fair enough, but that's not really legitimate grounds for criticism i think that the reason that i have some sympathy with the devon ferracci thing and why i don't think that it's just um clickbait journalism um although again i don't know this guy's videos so you know i, I don't know his history at all i'm only going to base this one video that i watched but uh, the the criticisms that he makes i don't think add up to um the outrage that he expresses and the fact that the original cast are in it as like cameos rather than as the original characters it's like does that matter? And he gets really angry because um, it's called Ghostbusters and it's not called Ghostbusters subtitle. So people will have to constantly be distinguishing between Ghostbusters 2016 and Ghostbusters 1984. And 
is that important? You know, like these are peripheral issues. I, I don't, I cannot imagine these really being the linchpin of your complaints. And he seems to be saying that like, there's another way of doing a Ghostbusters, you know, another version of Ghostbusters, which it would be identically as cash driven, but that would have pleased him more. And yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to tell because like there's a certain irrationality to like people's attachments to, and so, yeah. It might be, like, literally the fact that their cameos is just enough to piss them no, off. No, no. But uh, with this point um, of it being a cash cow, like, his version would be a cash cow. If you had them all back, it was the same things, and you passed it on to, like, Jonah Hill and Will Ferrell or whatever, like, this is a much riskier take on the material. Absolutely. There's, like... Yeah. And I know Melissa McCarthy's very bankable when, you know, a risky take before, you know... Well-known well comedians, yeah. Directors of a number of hits with comedies. But it's still in the climate, like much riskier than. There's a much safer version of Ghostbusters. Uh, there is absolutely, right. and, and I also think that um, the the fact the fact that this is different to the standard way to do this reboot is exactly why it's an interesting proposition. You know, the safe reboot kind of thing is like, yeah, it's like Star Wars: Force Awakens, it's a very safe film, or uh, Jurassic World, something like that, yeah. which is basically the same kind of people with you know remixed and a very corporate driven written movie whereas this thing of like let's make them all women is like uh it doesn't sound like the most thrilling creative idea ever but it actually is an unusual and interesting decision to make and uh most female driven comedies except for paul feig's tend to be about very women doing very women stuff you know like uh you know worrying about men or like yeah, yeah. You know, I think Paul Feiger's part of his thing is making women-centered movies where they're doing traditionally men stuff, like uh, The Heat, which is like a cop movie about women, and Spy, which is a spy comedy about yeah. women. And this is like them busting ghosts. I think that if you if you're bothered, like you said, it's like if you're bothered by the cynicism of doing a remake, then it you know that's leavened by the fact that this is it's got that different twist on it yeah you know and it, i think it also distances it from the originals in a way that makes it less of an impact on them it's like there's a completely different cast it's like in a different world it's not you know continuing the narrative and it, in a way it leaves the originals alone more than a movie that had bill murray playing peter venkman in it would have done yeah absolutely so i feel like i don't know i've i've now like but there's sort of massive hatred and maybe it's like a sort of self-perpetuating thing now where there's just you know think pieces about the think pieces but it now this film must be good for like the good of humanity as a whole i'm willing it like it's got to make all the money in the world the trailers are like bad but the spy trailers weren't that good and i yeah. i have faith in these four hilarious women and this director well i think that's a i think that's a fair comparison actually because uh the trailers for spy looked like a very generic comedy and the movie was hilarious like I laughed constantly in Spy. Like, it's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, there was a new trailer for Ghostbusters that came out, like, today, I think. I didn't watch it. Did you yeah, watch yeah. it? It's not that good, I would say. That's a shame. I was hoping this would be the one that turned it around, but... I think, yeah. It's like, whoever... They've got the bizarro twin of the Star Wars promotion guy. Just, like, not at all good at cutting trailers and sort right, of, you yeah. know... More of the tinkly piano stuff. It's just, like, a bit disjointed and a, a bit like they've uh, attempted to sort of course correct in a way which is actually worse like yeah. you know you, what do you want to see uh, this stuff uh, here you go they did that a bit with the batman v superman uh, marketing where yeah. a trailer came out and there was like everyone was like what the fuck is this film and then another trailer came out that was like full of jokes and had a giant monstrous orc at the end and people were like i still think this looks bizarre yeah um anyway anyway 
I, it's a, it reminds me of that joke in the trailer for um, the Tina Fey movie, um, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, where they're talking about the first like Afghanistan woman to drive or something, and then she like immediately crashes the car, and Tina Fey's like, "This is bad for women everywhere," <laughs> and uh, and it's a bit like that, where like this sort of dumb, yeah, you know, comedy has suddenly become the fulcrum of uh, you know on which feminism turns. You know, it's like you better succeed, movie. Women are depending on you. We all are counting on you. We're counting on you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's all we have time for. On this and that's all we have time, time for, for today. So join us next week. We'll probably be reviewing X-Men Apocalypse. Apocalypse and also Everybody Wants Something, Richard Letter, which has got mixed reviews. I thought it had so just you've been pretty wondering... good reviews. Well, there's... Well, did, like, people don't like it in the UK, maybe. It got quite a lot of raves in the US. but uh, And we should also plug our upcoming film quiz, should we not? Absolutely. On June the 15th, pencil in film chat quiz we're going to be back at the social just off soho there's going to be an amazing quiz it's going to have all the best rounds of last time or even better rounds there's going to be prizes there's going to be jokes there's going to be music yeah it's going to be um, super fun fun for the whole family fun for the whole family look out for a facebook event coming your way soon yes and we know this doesn't give you very much time to prepare for it but clear out whatever you had going on that day i don't care if it's your mother's wedding uh, just I don't care if your mother's funeral. I don't care. What, I there. don't care what your mother is doing that day. Okay, just get her to cancel her plans and bring her to film chat for a fun movie quiz. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be a fun night. Say, so... hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We'll see you then. Have a great week, everyone. See you soon. Godspeed. Goodbye.